Good morning again. Good morning. Thank you for remembering. I chastised everybody harshly last week for not saying good morning. That's why, if you remember. Um, our, our, our sermon text for this morning is, uh, comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 18. If you could turn with me in your Bibles there to Acts 11. Uh, if you don't uh, have a Bible or if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free to grab one from the back table. There should be some just outside the door there. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free not only to take that for use in the service, uh, but write your name in it, keep it, take it home with you, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Uh, before we read God's Word this morning, please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that... We can laugh together and uh, just enjoy one another and the fellowship that you have given us. We thank you uh, most of all for your mercy in your son Jesus. And uh, we thank you for your word which proclaims that mercy. We come to you this morning, Father, to hear, uh, to hear from you, to hear your word, to hear your gospel, to hear afresh your grace that we might believe it again and receive it again and trust in Jesus again because we need him. We need him day by day and moment by moment and hour by hour. And uh, we just pray that you would pour out your spirit on us now, that you would open our hearts and minds, uh, that you would help us to hear and understand and believe and receive your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would shape us, shape us into people who trust you, uh, shape us into people who live, uh, live our lives as if we trust you as we walk day by day in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth." But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angels stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And I began to, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, uh, JFK supposedly wrote that a typical American menu in about 1958 uh, might include some of the following dishes. Irish stew, chop suey, goulash, chili con carne, ravioli, knockwurst mit sauerkraut, Yorkshire pudding, Welsh rarebit, borscht, gefilte fish, Spanish omelet, caviar, mayonnaise, antipasto, Baumkuchen, English muffins, Gruyere cheese, Danish pastry, Canadian bacon, hot tamales, wiener schnitzel, petit fours, spumoni, bouillabaisse, mate, scones, Turkish coffee, minestrone, and filet mignon. His point, I'm guessing, uh, was the great variety within American life and the influence of immigrants on the American experience, which works its way down even into the American kitchen, into the most mundane, everyday aspects of our lives. You know, one of the reasons I've always liked living in university towns is the variety of restaurants to partake of and enjoy. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, one time in Philly, uh, Deborah and I, with a couple other friends, actually, they took us to a restaurant called Susanna Foo's. And uh, it was this Chinese-French fusion amazing restaurant. The truth is, though, uh, the presence of various cultures doesn't always lead to harmonious new dishes. Our country uh, is deeply divided over many cultural issues. And I'm pretty sure I don't have to convince you of that. But this is nothing new. The first controversies in the church were about cultural issues and the disunity that that sometimes brings. You may remember back in Acts chapter 6, uh, the Greek-speaking widows felt neglected compared to the Jewish-speaking widows. And uh, cultural prejudice, whether real or perceived, was at the heart of the problem. And you may remember the solution uh, at the time was at least in part a structural one. Uh, they, they placed Greek-speaking people in positions of authority to root out any systemic prejudice against the Greek-speaking people. Uh, it was both a humble and ingenious plan on the part of the apostles. But here we are a little further down the road in Acts chapter 11, and we have another cultural division. Uh, this time it's not between Greek-speaking Jews and Aramaic-speaking Jews, uh, but between Jew and Gentile. It's really a controversy over membership. Uh, you didn't know that we just did a controversial thing a moment ago, uh, bringing people into membership in the church. But if this were the first century, that would have been pretty radical. So we're going to talk this morning about unity in the church. Uh, unity in the church in the face of cultural diversity. Uh, now, the world has a lot to say about that, but I think the gospel has something better to say about that. And so our outline this morning, we're going to talk about the law that breaks unity, 
the spirit who brings unity, and the meal that expresses unity. And uh, if you would like to follow along uh, on the back of your bulletin, uh, you can find that outline and you can follow through uh, point by point there. So first we'll talk about the law that breaks unity. Um, what, what rules do you have for your dinner table? When I was a kid, uh, it seemed like there were a lot of rules to follow at the dinner table, and I hated them all. Um, they seemed pretty pointless to me. Of course, now I'm a parent, and uh, I have some of those same rules for my kids at the dinner table, and they probably seem pretty pointless to them. Uh, Though I don't have quite as many, I'd like to think. Um, well, what, what rules do you have? Uh, what rules do you have for eating with people? Um, are, are there people that you would just not eat with under any circumstances? Eating is an expression of fellowship. Um, so that question is about fellowship. It's about community. It's about unity, who you would eat with, who you would not eat with. Um, this question uh, uh, is about what, what are the grounds of our unity? Where does unity come from? With whom can we enjoy it? Well, in the early church, controversy was alive and well. Uh, the, what that means is that just being a Christian doesn't make you conflict-free. Maybe you figured that out by now. Um, sadly, in fact, it's sometimes the opposite. Uh, sometimes entering in the church and, and being a Christian brings more conflict, both from without and sometimes from within. Not all conflict is bad, of course. Uh, we, we need to hash out truth together, don't we? We need to wrestle. We need to seek to understand and apply Scripture to our lives. Uh, that takes deliberation. It takes discussion. It takes wrestling together with, with the text of Scripture and with our own lives. Sometimes controversy comes uh, about because someone is only looking at half of the picture. Uh, you, you, you may uh, have been in a situation like that, right? Someone uh, gets caught up. Maybe they get caught up in what God has done in the past and they're missing what God is doing in the present. Uh, maybe they get so caught up in one good thing, they miss another good thing. Or they get so caught up in God's law that they miss His grace. Or they get so caught up in the cultural that they miss the theological. Uh, all of these are in some ways true of this early controversy in the church in Acts 11 to one degree or another. Notice verses 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Uh, our, our outline this morning is in terms of, of unity, as uh, I've said before, but the reason that's the case is because the criticism that these men brought to Peter is framed in terms of table fellowship, right? It, it's framed in terms of who can you eat with, who can you have unity with. But we shouldn't miss that there is, there's really an underlying theological issue here. Uh, the question being wrestled with was this, right? What fits one for God's presence? See, for the circumcision party, uh, the Old Testament law or the Mosaic law fit them for God's presence. 
And so in order to be clean, this is the Old Testament term, right? In order to be fit for God's presence, I had to keep the law. And since the Mosaic law draws this division between Jew and Gentile, if I want to be fit for God's presence, I, I, I can't eat with Gentiles. See, the, the, the horizontal problem of eating with uncircumcised people was because of these vertical implications. If I eat with uncircumcised people, if I eat with Gentiles, I won't be fit for God's presence. I'll be unclean. Right? The horizontal problem was because of these vertical implications. Of course, what we're going to see is that there's a vertical solution in our relationship to God uh, that ultimately solves the horizontal problem. We'll get there. And so behind this question of what is our standard for unity is really a question about what fits us for God's presence. What makes us clean in his sight? Because if God accepts us, of course, we should accept one another. Uh, put it differently, like what was the problem with Peter eating with uncircumcised people? Well, uncircumcised people, Gentiles, didn't keep God's law. They didn't keep God's law, and so they were unclean. Uh, God's law specifically had a lot to say about food, uh, and so Gentile food was unclean. Gentiles were unclean, Gentile food is unclean, so if I eat with Gentiles, I will become unclean and therefore, again, unfit for God's presence. You see, the Old Testament law uh, was intended to mark out a holy people. Holy means set apart, distinct, separate. Uh, the food laws kept the Jews separate from Gentiles, and therefore it creates this division. If I'm to keep the law, I have to be separate from those who don't keep the law. The law creates this division. Now, the, the truth of the matter is, okay, we're, we're no longer under the, the Old Testament law, under the Mosaic law, uh, either as a church or as a nation. Um, but we all have laws that create divisions, don't we? The way we do things sometimes separates us out from others who, who do things differently. Uh, think, think about the rules that you might have, uh, that we might have in the church. You have to have this theology in order to sort of be a part of our group. Or you have to wear these clothes. Or you have to sing these songs to this style of music, right? We, we divide over those kinds of things. The question is, what unifies us in the church? American culture, of course, doesn't really care about fitness for God's presence. Uh, or, or maybe more accurately, I think according to the culture around us, if there is a God... You need nothing to fit you for his presence. God accepts everyone, after all. And so, in theory, we erase all divisions in our culture. And yet, in practice, we're actually deeply divided by those divisions, right? We have unwritten, unspoken rules about what you must believe concerning politics or what kind of language you must or must not use. Or, or, or some of our rules are purely cultural. Some of our rules are more moral. Most are, are kind of some mishmash of the two. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that we'd like to say, uh, yeah, we have no holiness code. We have no clean and unclean. We have no caste system. Actually, we have dozens of caste systems, right? Everyone has their own holiness code of who's in and who's out. Um, I, I shared with some of you recently, I can't even remember where, but uh, that some years ago when I was first looking for churches, I came in one, upon one church. It was in Texas. And it, it seemed like they were pretty involved in politics, this church, and uh, from their website. And uh, I, I was desperate for a first call to a church, so I applied. And um, when I was talking on the phone with someone from the, the search committee, I, I realized that just 
this church was deeply partisan and uh, shaped by that. And I, and I asked the person, um, would a Democrat feel welcome at your church? And uh, her, her response was, well, I guess so, but I don't know why a Democrat would want to come to our church. Uh, right? That's a case of the world's divisions leaking into the church. What are your unspoken rules? What is your holiness code? Right? What is your caste system? Uh, who do you declare to be unclean and why? Right? Who do you declare to be outside of God's grace? Uh, the, the law, whether the Mosaic law of the Old Testament or our own laws, always brings this disunity. It breaks unity. It gives us a clear guide of who's in and who's out, uh, who can I talk to, who must I avoid, who's my friend, who's my enemy. Right? The law breaks unity. So then the question is, well, what brings it? There are a million reasons for us to be divided in the church. Uh, there are probably a million reasons for us to be divided in this room. So what brings unity to us in this room? And that brings us to the second point, the spirit. The spirit who brings unity. Uh, th there was a conflict in the church, right? Peter was criticized for eating with Gentiles. Uh, but before we look at the content of Peter's response, uh, I want you to notice his method. It's, it's pretty important, right? Skip down to verse 17. In verse 17, Peter says, if then God. Uh, how did Peter argue his point? Well, Peter argued his point um, by, uh, he, he didn't say, um, I think this is a good idea and here's why. Uh, he didn't say, uh, this is a new age we live in, right? You need to keep up with the times and move on. He didn't say, well, this is the way we've always done it. This is tradition. What Peter does is he recounts the whole story of what happened in the last chapter of the book of Acts, right? So we just heard all of this last week uh, in, in chapter 10. And Peter, he goes through the whole story over again. He tells us all of the details of what happened. Not quite all the details, but a lot of them. And uh, he, he recounts all of those details to say, here is what God has done. Peter is taking no credit for what he did. Uh, it's, it's not a cop-out, right? He, he's, not, he's not shifting blame. Uh, he's, he's not trying to hide behind the Bible, right? Sometimes we, we do that in conversations. That's not what he's doing. Um, actually, he's, he's, he's really modeling for us how we should deliberate in the church. Peter is appealing to God's actions, uh, as determinative of his own. Uh, it, you know, if we have controversy in our church, how, how should we solve that? Well, by appealing to what God has said and done in Christ. Ultimately, God is the ultimate arbiter, right, of everything that we do. His word uh, determines what we should or should not do. If we, if we can't ground our actions in what Scripture says, either in its commands, its clear teaching, or in the freedom that it gives us, either in what it says or in what by good and necessary consequence is implied. If, if we can't ground our actions in Scripture, then we have no grounds for doing what we're doing. We have no argument. And so like Peter, right, in the church, when controversies of, of religion arise, right, which they, they do, uh, we appeal to Scripture. Right? It's explicit commands, it's grant of freedom, it's clear teaching, it's, it's good and necessary implications. We look to what Scripture has said. Peter appeals to what 
what God did. Here's what God did. Um, but what does Peter actually say? What is his argument? Uh, and, and for that matter, what does Luke say, right, who's writing this account? Well, both Luke and Peter want us to see that, that God was at work, sovereignly drawing the Gentiles to himself through faith in Jesus. And since the Gentiles were brought near to God through Jesus, the implication is that these old divisions uh, between Jew and Gentile, this old order of clean and unclean is, is done away with. And table fellowship with Gentiles can ensue. Uh, notice the, the comments about what happened to the Gentiles, right? Verse 1, all in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Verse 14, Cornelius is told, uh, Peter will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Verse 15, as I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Verse 16, by implication, Peter is saying that the Gentiles have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believe. Verse 18, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, these verses give us a, really a clear picture of what happened. First, that we have the word of God. We have a message. Verse 15, Peter says, as I began to speak, Right? God sent his message to the Gentiles. God sent Peter. Peter makes that very clear. He, he didn't want to go. He didn't choose to go. He didn't think, hey, this is a good idea. I think I'll go to Cornelius' house. God sent him uh, through a vision, through the Spirit, speaking to him, telling him what to do. Peter was told, verse 12, go with them, make no distinction. Right? So, so God sends his message to the Gentiles. And, and it's a message about the Lord Jesus, right? We're told in verse 1 that they receive the message. Well, that's the same thing then in verse 17 as believing in Jesus, right? So God sends his message about Jesus through Peter to the Gentiles. Second, the Gentiles received that, right? They, they received the word. They believed in Jesus. They repented, and this believing, this receiving, this repentance, we're told explicitly, was the work of God. Verse 18 says, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. Where did that repentance come from? It didn't come from the Gentiles themselves. They didn't work the repentance up in their own hearts. It didn't come from Peter, right? He, he didn't like... He didn't work them up by his speech to bring repentance. No, uh, God must grant repentance. God must grant faith. Faith doesn't come from within ourselves. It's the gift of God. Paul will say elsewhere. And so uh, God sends his message to the Gentiles sovereignly. God enables the Gentiles to receive that message. And then the result of the Gentiles receiving the word or believing in Jesus is that they receive or are baptized with, or are given the gift of, it's used, it's said all three ways, given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or according to verse 14, they are saved. When does the Spirit come down and save them? At what point does the Spirit come down and save them? Look at verse 15. Peter says, as I began to speak. As I began to speak. Now, why does Peter stress that? Uh, in fact, it in chapter 10, it looks like it's at the end of his speech that the Holy Spirit falls. Why does he stress, as I began to speak? Well, on the one hand, apparently he had a lot more to say, but he was interrupted by God pouring out his spirit. 
On the other hand, uh, what this shows is, is God's sovereignty in salvation. It, it wasn't that Peter had this great presentation of the gospel, and once he got through it, by the sheer force of his winsome personality, they turned from sin to Jesus. No, Peter hadn't even finished. He had only just begun, but God acted anyway. God didn't have to wait for Peter to finish before saving the Gentiles. Well, what's the significance of, of the Spirit being poured out? Well, of course, in some ways, uh, time doesn't permit me to say everything that that means. But, but one important thing to mention in this context is this. Remember, remember again the purpose of the Mosaic Law. Uh, the purpose of the Mosaic Law was to create a unique people, to mark them out, to set them apart, to sanctify them as holy so that they could come into God's presence. But the, the truth of the matter is, as we read through the Old Testament and, and into the New, what we realize is uh, those laws did not make people holy in heart, but only holy in ceremony. Uh, they became ritually holy, not morally holy. Right? They became outwardly clean, not inwardly clean. They became physically set apart, but not spiritually set apart. They became able to enter the physical tent of God's presence, but not the spiritual reality of heaven. Jesus comes along and bears our uncleanness. He's exiled from God's presence at the cross. He rises from the de dead, defeating death, purchasing for his people the gift of God's spirit. And then he sends the spirit to do what? To cleanse our hearts by faith. Right? He, he makes us morally and inwardly and spiritually holy. He cleanses the heart. The Spirit does that, not the law. But there's more. In that same act of sending the Spirit, the, the Spirit comes to cleanse and to reside. The Spirit cleanses us and makes us God's temple in the same moment. See, what the law foreshadowed, a clean people entering God's holy presence, Jesus fulfilled by sending his spirit. See, the circumcision party was worried that the Mosaic law, well, it cleanses us so we might dwell in God's presence. If we stop keeping that law, we'll be unclean. We can't enter his presence. All of that is overturned in this single act of Jesus giving his spirit. Suddenly, we are clean and have God's presence within us. In one moment, the old order is obsolete, undone, overturned. The old wineskins are exchanged for new, as Jesus put it. Now, now, don't get me wrong, of course, saying that the Mosaic law was overturned doesn't, doesn't mean that we now uh, have a moral free-for-all. doesn't mean that sin no longer uh, hinders us uh, from fellowship with God. But it does mean two things. It means, on the one hand, we can be cleansed of our sin and restored to fellowship by looking to Jesus. Right? 1 John 1, 9, which we uh, read earlier, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is no sin so big that it can keep you from fellowship with God if you repent, confess, and come to Jesus. Now, it's not, of course, God, I'm going to keep doing this, but you have to accept me because of Jesus. That's not the case, right? That's not what it is. But it's, it's God, I hate this sin, or at least I wish I hated this sin. Please forgive me and take it away through Jesus. It's Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, when we come to God broken and contrite, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. There's something else, though, that this means, this this undoing of the Mosaic law. It means Jesus' work in cleansing us, in, in making us truly holy, means not only that no sin can keep us from God, but second, by, by implication from the greater to the lesser, right? It means that no cultural or this worldly distinction can keep us from God. Right? We, again, we each have our own rules for our own reasons, right? Our worldly distinctions, our worldly divisions help us sometimes make sense of the world rightly or wrongly. Um, sometimes our rules make us feel good, right? I'm right, you're wrong, and the world makes sense to me. Uh, we condemn some, we praise others, and all seems right and in order. But aside from God's moral law, our rules are irrelevant for our standing with God. Jesus makes us truly clean. Jesus makes us holy in him. It doesn't matter whether we washed the dishes this morning or made our bed. It doesn't matter what grade we got on our last exam. It doesn't matter our position at work. It doesn't matter our political affiliation or our musical tastes our nationality, ethnicity, gender, or economic status, right? In Christ, we are clean. And don't misunderstand me. What, what I'm not saying, what this doesn't mean, it's not that Jesus cleanses us of those things. It's that they are irrelevant for whether we are clean or unclean. The distinctions of this age have no bearing on holiness. By definition, holiness means we belong to another age, the age to come, the age of heaven. This is why the law brings division, but the spirit brings unity because in the spirit, the divisions of this age lose their meaning. The law brings division, the spirit brings acceptance with God, cleansing and abiding, and therefore unity with one another. This brings us uh, to then the third point, which is the meal that expresses unity. Uh, Remember the accusation or the criticism that Peter faced in verse 3. Some say to him, and they say, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Again, table fellowship implies unity. By eating with uncircumcised men, Peter was proclaiming the unity that we have in the Spirit, the unity, unity that we have in Christ. And there are some implications then for how we express that unity or how we experience that in the church today. Uh, The first implication is that we we can't cut others off. Uh, Don't divide based on worldly distinctions. When you shun others because they're different from you in some this worldly sense, you are returning to the law. You're acting as if you belong to this age with its divisions rather than to the age to come. We must accept others as God in Christ has accepted us, irrespective of worldly distinctions. We must do this whether, whether they are Christians or not, not because their in Christness doesn't matter, but because that's the only thing that matters. Second, we should not listen to others who would cut you off. Right? Have you ever had someone make you feel like a second-class Christian? Uh, You you don't worship with the right music, or you don't school your children in the right way, or you don't have the correct theology. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to strive for sound theology. (laughs) 
I want to seek wisdom in how we raise our children. But these things don't make us first or second class Christians. Uh, Even your sin, hear me for a second, right? Even your sin doesn't make you a second class Christian. How can that be? Well, because we're all sinful in this room. What is most important is not whether we sin or not, but what we do with that. Do we take it to Jesus? Do we humbly confess it? Do we repent? Do we own it before him? Do we seek forgiveness? Do we seek the help of his spirit to change? Or do we just live in it? Do we wallow in it? This is why our standard for membership in all souls is simply this, right? Do you know Jesus? Are you striving to walk with Jesus? Are you living in daily repentance and faith? Not do you have it all together. Not is your life a a picture of perfection. Not is your theology spot on. But by the outward evidences of repentance and faith, do you belong to Christ? This is also why membership is such an encouragement, right? Acceptance into membership in in the church of Jesus is, is Jesus saying through his church, I've accepted you. I've received you as my own, not because you're perfect, not because you have the right opinions, but because you have received the word, believed the message, and trusted in Jesus. This brings us to a a final implication, which is uh, that we should relish in the Lord's Supper. Now, now that may seem kind of odd. It may seem foreign to this text, uh, but it's actually not as foreign as you might think. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And here, Peter is accused of what? Eating with Gentiles. See, Peter's eating with the Gentiles was the recognition of their acceptance in Christ. Our partaking of the Lord's Supper together as a body is our recognition of our acceptance in Christ. See, when you come to the Lord's table with others, uh, especially with those uh, who, who differ from you in the present age in some way, we confess together that our acceptance is in Christ, not in any of the distinctions of this world. Eating together at the Lord's table is our proclamation to the world that all worldly distinctions are null and void in Christ at this table. That in him there is no Jew or Greek, no slave or free, no male or female, but we are all one in Christ, as Paul says. Where does unity come from in the church? It comes not from agreeing on everything, because we won't. Uh, No family agrees on everything. It comes not from uniformity. It comes not from cultural conformity. Unity comes from being in Christ, from belonging to him, from his spirit dwelling in us. How is that unity expressed? Is expressed by breaking bread together. Whether at the Lord's table or at each of our own tables, as we break bread in our homes, welcoming one another as God in Christ has welcomed us. And of course, that's, we don't, we're not having the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. It would be great if this were uh, next week and we could move into the Lord's Supper right now. That would be perfect. Uh, we're not having the Lord's Supper this morning. I'm sorry. Uh, but... Um, but again, uh, that, that unity is expressed not only in the, at the Lord's table, but as we eat and drink and fellowship with one another. So, uh, you know, afterwards, here's what we do have after the service. Uh, we have cake. <laughs> and we can express our unity with one another as we eat cake together. Praise God, right? 
Uh, right? So, so we, right, we, can, we can celebrate. Uh, you know, people have been brought into our community. Uh, people have uh, entered into membership in this church. And so we can express that unity as we eat and drink together, right? After the service today, even. How is our, the unity expressed? Is, our unity in Christ is expressed in our fellowship with one another as we welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the unity that we have in the Spirit. Uh, we thank you that we don't have to manufacture that unity. We don't have to create that unity. We don't have to somehow uh, work it up in ourselves by, by conforming to one another or by uh, becoming just like one another. We, our unity is in you and in the Spirit. I pray that you would help us to celebrate that and rejoice in that and proclaim that to the world that here in the church, those worldly distinctions don't matter. Help us to rest in Jesus, to rest in his work on our behalf and the gift that he has given of his spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.